Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. If you have your Bibles, would you open to the Gospel of John, chapter 12? As a fellowship, we are going through the Gospel of John, so I'm going to walk you through John chapter 12. I'm going to focus on three points in the second half of my message. And let me tell you those three points in advance. And then I'm going to just give an overview of the chapter and then come back to these three essential points. Here are the three essential points that we will dwell on in a moment. Number one, the courage to abide and associate with Jesus extravagantly. The courage to abide and associate with Jesus extravagantly. Number two, the commitment to abandon completely. The commitment to abandon completely. And number three, the consecration to apostle globally. The consecration to apostle globally. I'm going to come back to those and dig into them, but let's first just have an overview of John chapter 12 so that we all understand the context for these three specific points. It's the pivot chapter in the Gospel of John. We are now entering the countdown to the cross. In six days from this chapter, Jesus is going to die on the cross. So the prelude has been the first 11 chapters and the miracles and the wonders that Jesus has done, the signs. But now we pivot and the whole force of the gospel and our attention is to be drawn to the cross and Jesus dying for the sins of the world. In the first section, you'll see this in the first eight verses, we see extravagance lavished on Jesus. Because that's a peripheral or a central point, I'm going to actually just come back to that later. Secondly, from verse 9 on, we have this question, 9 to 11, and you can see these little sections in your Bible if you have your Bibles open. It's how the text is divided in most of your versions. But from verse 9 to 11, we have the question, show or Savior? People are coming to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead, and the text says, they're not really coming for Jesus' sake, but because of Lazarus. And the implied question here is, are you a sensationalist? Do you love Jesus because of the first 11 chapters of John, where he turns the water into the wine, and he makes all these wonderful inclusive statements, and he does all these miracles? Is that the Jesus that you love? Do you love the Jesus that can raise Lazarus from the dead? Or, pivot, do you love the Jesus that is actually going to the cross to suffer and die for the sins of the world? Verses 12 to 19, there's a very interesting truth that emerges, and that is simply this, that mercy and majesty, when they are directed to others than ourselves, disappoint us. We love the mercy of God for ourselves. But we find out from Scripture that God is more merciful than any of you 
And when He directs that mercy to the ones that we don't think deserve it, we don't like that. They shout Hosanna, which means God save us when Jesus enters into the city. And it turns out to be more of an order than a request. Because when God doesn't save them, i.e. political Israel, when God doesn't save the homies, when God doesn't save the ones that we like, but in, in fact turns His attention to others, to mercy others, they don't like that. And the ones that say, Lord, save us, when He didn't save us, but saves the world, then they get ticked and start shouting, crucify Him. And this king who is full of mercy, the significance of coming in on the, the colt, the foal of a donkey, is that when a, in the Middle East, when a king comes in to conquer and to have vengeance and do violence, he came in on a steed. But when he came in to do mercy, he rode as a sign of peacemaking on the colt, full of a donkey. We don't like mercy when it's applied to others. We want it selfishly for ourselves. Verses 20 to 26 Life starts by dying. I'm going to unpack that. Verses 27 to 36, it's about the nations, not a peculiar people. We'll dig into that a little bit in a moment as well. You see, the whole Second Temple Judaism thought was, Israel is the apple of God's eye. The Messiah is coming. He's going to take care of us. He's going to attack the Romans. Every other people, every other nation will be subservient to us. It's all about us. We are the chosen. We are the favored ones. And Jesus is systematically destroying that ethnocentrism and saying, no, it's always been about all the nations, all the ethne of the world. Verse 37 through 41, we see that judgment is mercy. We have this interesting phrase about hardened hearts. It says that God hardened their hearts. Maybe you think back to the story of Pharaoh and it says God hardened his hearts. I just want you to understand that judgment from the Lord who is only good is actually mercy. Those ten plagues that we talk about in Egypt that hardened Pharaoh's heart, you know what they actually were? Ten mercies. Every time there is an opportunity for mercy. And the same sun that bakes the clay melts the butter. It's the same source that has a different effect depending on how you respond to it, by how you're constituted. And in those plagues of Pharaoh's time, what God was actually doing was ten times showing how merciful He is. There's always mercy in the judgments of the Lord. And then, verse 42 to verse 50, we see that we ultimately will be judged by the source of our praise. Verse 43 just bluntly says, they loved the praises of men, rather than the praises of God. So these are big picture themes. All of them could be unpacked, but I actually want to drill down into three critical ones from this chapter. And the first one, go back to the beginning of the chapter, is that we must have the courage to associate with Jesus and to abide extravagantly. If you look at verse 3, then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So I live in, it's a fairly segregated country as far as gender. And most of the big villas of my friends have what they call a majlis. 
A majlis is a separate living room, and it's got these couches that are at ground level all the way around 360 degrees in the room, and it is for the men only. And when I go to visit my friends, we sit in this very plush, air-conditioned living room. No ladies are allowed, and servants bring the tea and the dates and the coffee, etc. It is like uh, strictly enforced that that is a men-only era, area, very similar to the time of Jesus. I just want to say that to point out the courage that it took for Mary to go into that room. It's unthinkable in my Saudi context today that a woman would broach that etiquette and come into that male-dominated room. It's unthinkable. And yet here is a woman who is so in love with Jesus that she doesn't care. She breaks the cultural protocol and it's not really the protocol of touching him and the intimacy of anointing him and wiping those feet with his, her hair. That's shocking enough. But what's the greater cultural shock is that she had the courage to go into that room and associate with Jesus. Do you have that courage in your dorms or the places that you live? Is it so clear that you are radically in love with Jesus. It cost her something. That value of what she poured out on perfume on his feet. Some scholars say it was her whole dowry or her life savings or about a year and a half of her wages. In other words, she gave Jesus everything that she had physically. She gave him everything she had relationally. She was thought to be crazy and over-intimate. It was scandalous. She shouldn't be in that room. She shouldn't be touching him. She shouldn't be wasting. That's the understanding of the text. This extravagant waste on Jesus. She should have been doing none of those. But do you do them? When was the last time that anyone accused you of spending too much time with Jesus? When was the last time you spent all your savings on a missions offering? Emptied your bank account. Had no reserves left. Have you ever done that? When was the last time you didn't care what anyone thought of you? You broke the cultural norm or convention just because you loved to be in the presence of Jesus. Do you have the courage to abide extravagantly and to associate with Him To the level that it costs you something. And then Jesus says something fundamentally important to the text. He said, leave her alone because she's anointed me for my burial. Jesus knew the pivot of this chapter, that he's going to the cross. Fun and games are over. Now we set our face like a flint and we are going to die. This is the culmination of why I came to this earth. And she has suffered with me preparing me for my sufferings. A very interesting verse that corresponds to this is Philippians 3 verse 10, where Paul says, I want to know Christ. He had that same longing to associate with Christ, whatever it cost him. The power of his resurrection, but then the next phrase, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, so that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What was the context for the sufferings of Jesus? The sins of the world. Jesus suffered 
to redeem men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And Paul says, astoundingly, I want to know Jesus at that level. I want to enter into that fellowship. I want to suffer with Jesus for the nations because there is a knowledge of God that can only be ascertained when you suffer for the cause of global missions. Just want to be blunt. There's an aspect of Jesus you cannot know when you don't leave home and when you're only surrounded in Christian gatherings and Christian discipleship. There is a depth of the knowledge of God that is experienced only when you suffer with and for Him. Not because you're foolish. Not because you've stayed at home. Not because of anything that's peripheral except the cause of global mission. Don't feel sorry for missionaries. Don't feel sorry for those who are imprisoned, incarcerated, beaten, or killed for their faith. They have experienced a knowledge of Jesus that you should have a holy jealousy about. Mary had it. She gave everything she had. She broke social convention. She was ridiculed. She prepared him for burial. She participated, if you will then, in the death of Jesus. And Paul longed for that same experience. I want to know Jesus like that. I want to participate in the fellowship of his sufferings for the sins of the world. Do you have the courage to associate with and abide with Jesus extravagantly? I wish and I believe that one day it will be true that this Kaiaf will be marked by that. Those people waste time on Jesus. Those people waste their lives on Jesus. Those people waste their degrees and their education on Jesus. What a knowledge of God you will have if you join Him in his sufferings for the redemption of the world. Secondly, the commitment to abandon completely. John chapter 12, look at verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much grain. You know what we need? Not heroes. We need martyrs. You've got to go all the way to being dead. You've got to fall into the ground, not just suffer a little bit, but you actually got to die. And we're talking about dying to self and dying to pride and dying to your, your selfishness and dying to your own dreams for your life. But what I found in missions is that a lot of people sign up to be crucified, but nobody actually signs up to die. They want to suffer a little bit and wiggle around on the cross and then wiggle off. But if you want to see the multiplication, you actually got to go all the way and die. Let me illustrate that from 1960 in the United Arab Emirates. They only formed as a nation in about 1972. Before that, they were called the Trucial States because they signed truces with England for protection. And in 1960, a missionary couple who were both medical doctors who walked away from lucrative degrees and careers in America, they went to the Arabian Peninsula to serve as missionaries. They had an old Land Rover. They drove inland into the desert to a little oasis town called Al Ain, a catchment area of about 1,500 people. There they found a woman 
who had been in labor for three days. They did a cursory medical exam. They found that her bladder was so distended with urine that she couldn't deliver the baby, but they didn't have any of their medical instruments. So Dr. Kennedy, the man, went to the Land Rover, popped open the hood, found the smallest diameter hose he could, cut it out of the engine, made his own catheter, inserted it into the woman, drained her bladder, and then his wife delivered a healthy baby. The sheikh, the elder of this tribe, his name was Zaid, he was so impressed that they saved the baby and the mom's life, he said, I want you to come and I'm going to give you permission to start a clinic. He knew that they were Christians. I want you to help deliver babies. I want you to deliver the lives of our mothers in my tribe. Now, when a Muslim baby is born, the shahada is said into their ear. The first thing that they hear, I confess there's no God but God and Muhammad is the prophet of God. Well, Dr. Kennedy, the woman, when she delivered these babies, she'd lift them into her arms and whisper into their ears the name of Jesus and pray over all of these Muslim babies in the name of Jesus. Visit their homes on day seven and week two and one month and three months and tell Bible stories to those children and their families, the mothers, as these children grew. One of the very first babies to be born into the arms of Dr. Kennedy was named Muhammad. He was the son of Sheikh Zaid. Sheikh Zaid is the founder of the United Arab Emirates. That boy, Muhammad bin Zaid, is the crown prince today of Abu Dhabi. Last year, he was voted the most powerful man in the Arab world. He has mentored the crown prince of Saudi Arabia who's liberalizing the country. He is the driving force behind these Ibrahimic Accords, all these peace agreements with Israel from these multiple nations. He is delivering this tolerant society in the Emirates. He's given his protection, that baby boy who was prayed over in the name of Jesus, to the hospital where Bibles now are given out freely to the Emirates. And this man is changing the Arab world because Dr. Kennedy delivered him. But here's what I want to point out. In those early days, they had no refrigeration, no generators. And they needed blood all the time when a patient would hemorrhage or needed a transfusion. So the staff wrote their blood type on a piece of paper, taped it to the little clinic wall. And whenever blood was needed, they would donate. And Dr. Kennedy, the woman, was O negative, the universal donor type. So she gave blood more than anyone else. One day she's operating on a lady who starts to hemorrhage. She scrubs out, donates her blood, scrubs back in, saves the woman's life, saves that baby's life. And here's the point. She gave blood so often that the testimony of her life is this. She lived anemic. She was always tired and she was always weary because she was always giving her blood to save Muslim women's lives, to deliver little Muslim babies, to pray over them in the name of Jesus, to visit them in their homes and tell Bible stories. And those little babies, like Muhammad bin Zaid, have grown up to change the world. She bled. She knew that she had to be absolutely committed to abandon everything, even her own energy and even her own health. This principle is inscribed in Scripture for us. If I had referenced 
Paul in Acts chapter 16 when he went to Philippi. Maybe you know the story. At the beginning, a woman named Lydia gets saved and the house church develops in her home. Then Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl. The merchants of the city in Philippi get upset because this slave girl brought them money by her fortune telling. So the magistrates, wanting to honor the mercantile class, they put Paul in prison. In prison, there's an earthquake, and the Philippian jailer and his household get saved. After that, they realize that something is wonderfully powerful about this man. So the magistrates say, please leave the prison. And Paul says, no, I'm a Roman. And you beat me and put me in prison without trial. You come get me out yourself. What's Paul doing? Well, in that Roman society, you had patron-client privilege, right? So the patrons had the power. They'd offer a service. Then the clients would receive that privilege and offer obedience. That's how society worked. At the beginning, the magistrates have the power. And Paul, if you will, is the client. He has to do what they say. But because they contravened Roman law and did not give him due process... He didn't go through that trial. Now, there's a power inversion. And at the end of the story, Paul has the power. Those magistrates are in trouble. All Paul has to do is to go to the Roman governor and to say, hey, these turkeys didn't give me a trial. They beat me. They imprisoned me. He just has to report on them. They lose their job, their status, their honor, their income. All right? But the question is this. If Paul had that right, if Paul had that privilege... Why didn't he play the Roman card before his beating and before he went to prison? Why did he wait? Why did he take the beating? It seems unnecessary. Well, the clue is given to us in the last verse of Acts chapter 16. Because on the way out of town, Paul goes to Lydia's house. Why? This woman and her household is with me. And I'm leaving town, but if you lift one finger against her and touch her, I'm coming back, I'm reporting on you to the authorities, and your life as you know it is over. He extended his status to Lydia, and he leaves town, and they're under his protection. Those magistrates can't touch her. Now whether Paul knew all that strategy ahead of time or not, this we know for sure, that if he wouldn't of played the Roman card and not taken his beating, the Philippian jailer doesn't get saved. But my point is this. Paul did not claim his rights. He did not stand on privilege. But he gave them up. And the result was Lydia's house and her church and her life are preserved and the Philippian jailer gets saved. So here's my question for you. What rights and what privileges will you lay down so that the Lydia's of the world And the Philippian jailers of our society can come to know Jesus. Do you have the right to live near your parents for the rest of your life? You certainly do. Do you have the right to earn all kinds of money from the wonderful degrees that you are earning right here in America? You certainly do. You're willing to lay those down? You're willing to go to jail? Not play your Roman card? So that Jesus can be glorified amongst every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Are you willing to commit to abandon so completely that you go all the way to be dead? The dreams, the plans, the timeline that you had for your life, 
the privileges you hope to enjoy for Jesus' sake and for those who have never heard, are you willing to abandon them? Not just a little temporary sacrifice, not just a little squiggling on the cross. Are you willing to stay there until you're dead so that others might live? Unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much grain. Thirdly, do you have the consecration to apostle globally? Look at verse 32. Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. In verse 47, it says he came to save the world. In 1985, there were 2.5 billion people in the world that did not know Jesus. 1.5 billion of those are what we call unreached people groups. No Christians, no Bibles, no churches, no access to the gospel in a way they could understand. 1985. 2021, 6 billion people in the world are lost. 3.2 billion are what we call unreached. Without adequate witness, access to the scriptures, a Christian friend, a church in their language. It's getting worse, not better. Just by birth rates. We've seen 20 people or so baptized in Saudi this year. We just, from our team members, baptized some in Iraq and some in Syria and a dozen or so in Libya. We're seeing 40 that just got saved in southern Morocco. We're seeing really incredible things in the Arab world, but we're not even staying up with birth rates. 3.2 billion people in the world right now who don't have access, adequate access to the gospel. These are, more than ever in history, with all of our technology and all of our gospel resource, these are the days that are the most desperate with the most people numerically that have never heard about Jesus. In 1942, it was the middle of World War II and Churchill was the Prime Minister in the United Kingdom. And at the most critical hour of the Battle of Britain, the coal miners go on strike. This is a problem Because that coal is driving the war effort. But the coal miners were upset because their wages were low and because they didn't have the glamour job in the war effort. They're down in the bowels of the earth and nobody knew what they were doing. So Churchill goes and gives a famous speech and maybe you've read it or heard about it, but essentially he says this to the striking coal miners. We're going to win this war. And when we do we're going to have a big old parade. And in that parade, at the front, will come the Air Force who fought the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain and they will receive acclaim. And then will come the Navy who kept the shipping lanes open and delivered commodities and weapons to our allies abroad and they will be praised. And then will come the Army who took the land and spilt their blood and held it for the advance of the Allied forces. They also will be cheered. But last of all, in that parade, will come a band of dirty men 
with old clothes, wrinkled faces, and soot all over their arms. The coal miner. And they shall be asked, Where were you in England's darkest hour? And they shall reply, We were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. We're going to win this war. The Bible says in Matthew 24, verse 14, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world amongst every nation as a witness, and then the end will come. Revelation 7, 9 tells us that around the throne will be a great multitude of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We've read the end of the book. We know what happens at the end of days. Jesus will come in power and glory. And in a moment, we will be changed. We will be like Him. We will ever be with the Lord. And in that wonderful heaven will be men and women of every culture, every tribe. It's what we are pressing for. We're going to win this war. And on that day of celebration, there will be the heroes of old, the first century church, the patristic fathers, and Raymond Lull will follow. And William Carey that we heard about. And Hudson Taylor. And Henry Martin. And some of the greats of the world. The Billy Grahams. And all of them will receive their applause. But at the end of that big parade that we have in heaven. There will be a Chi Alpha student. Who gave up their dreams and their plans and their life. To be rich and successful and famous in America. And went to some God-forsaken spot or deserted island or war-torn nation or Islamic state. And spilt their blood and lived anemic for the sake of the Lydia's and the Philippian jailers. And associated at great cost to themselves with Jesus abiding extravagantly in Him. And that Chi Alpha student, at the end of that great parade in heaven, will be asked, where were you in earth's darkest hour? And you will reply, we were down in the midst of the earth with my face to the coal. I left home. I left what was convenient. I left what was comfortable. I learned a new language. I loved people with everything that I had. I preached the gospel to the best that I could. I prayed down on my knees. And I lived amongst those who had never heard about Jesus. I was down in the midst of the earth with my face to the coal. Close your eyes and bow your heads. At this point in the Gospels, we all turn our eyes to the cross. And the cross doesn't mean you're just inconvenienced for a while. The cross means you die. You die to your sin. You die to yourself. And you die to your dream of what you thought your life would be. And you go all the way. And you join Jesus 
in the fellowship of His sufferings for the world. And you give Him everything. All your resources and all your reputation because He's so beautiful. Because He's so worthy. Because it's such a privilege to live anemic that the Lydia's and the Philippian jailers can join that parade in heaven and worship around the throne. Unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much grain. And if Jesus is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all peoples to himself. I often say that in Chi Alpha, we don't have a desire to answer questions for people when it comes to God's will for their life, their career and vocation. Our goal is to get them to ask the right questions. And if we can just ask the right questions, we trust that God will lead people and what that means for them. As Dick was sharing, I was reminded of a statement that's been repeated many times. That the flames don't make the martyr. The flames reveal the martyr that was already there. In other words, when people gave their life for witness of Christ, they had long ago died to self and declared that they would live for Jesus before that moment happened. And I feel like what's happening tonight is that God wants to do the inside stuff so then we can ask the right questions even, and let him take care of it. But to say, to ask the questions, it'll take courage. It'll take consecration and commitment. So I want you to know We have only one desire, and that is is that we would have our hearts in the right place to ask the right questions and let King Jesus take it from there. Lord, I pray for our fellowship. I'm so grateful for what you've been doing in our lives this semester. And I believe tonight is a real moment. And I pray that you would give us the courage that we need like the woman in John 12. Give us the heart posture that we need to truly die to self so we can live for Jesus. And give us the consecration that we need to walk that out. Lord, you know that I only have one desire for each of these precious sons and daughters of yours, and that is is that they would follow you wherever you would lead them. And so tonight, 
Lord, would you posture our hearts? Would you be glorified in our eyes? Open the eyes of our heart that we would see your glory. That these things would be the natural outflow of a revelation of your greatness. So I've been here, it's my 21st year, and so I know one of the questions tonight is, well, doesn't he believe in people in the marketplace? The answer is yes. People who have the courage to associate with Jesus, who are abandoned to Christ, who are willing to live for the glory of Christ in the nations. Yeah. He's going to, God's going to put us at the post he has for us. But, but what heart posture will we have? We'll be consecrated and living as the kernel of wheat and courageous So Lord, as we process this, as we go about our week, as we walk through Missions Week, I pray none of those things would stand in the way of us truly evaluating our hearts and asking questions of what you have for us. I pray that every plan and purpose that you have for each person in this room would be fulfilled. That you'd give them the power of the Spirit to walk faithfully into what you have for them with courage to associate with you, with a commitment to live as the kernel of wheat and consecrated for your glory in the nations. Lord, I pray that you would seal in our hearts what you're doing tonight for your glory, the good of the nations, and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you guys give Dick a hand for the message he brought tonight? Now for the benediction, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God bless you. Let's have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.